But if you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Colossians chapter 4 today. Starting a brand new study, a uh, brand new series called Reasons to Believe. And this first one, I think, will really set the tone for uh, the next couple of weeks of conversation. Um, pretty self-explanatory about what are the many reasons we have uh, to believe. Uh, one of the many reasons that we have to have faith uh, and to be bold in our faith and confidence in the Lord. Uh, we're going to open up and read Colossians. Actually, the passage begins in verse number two. You'll probably notice a break from verse one to verse two uh, in the headings that are inserted in most Bibles. We're going to read verses two through six and listen as Paul, he's signing off. He's kind of ending this book, but he ends it with, uh, with a, a call to all Christians uh, to consider what we have to say and, and the message we have to tell with our lives and, and specifically with our words uh, in the world that God has put us in. So Colossians 4, verse number two, Paul says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one or each person. Uh, Lindsay and I went out to dinner for one of those rare occasions um, without Andy. We, we love Andy being with us all the time, but uh, we, we've, uh, we have lunch together every week, but we rarely went on dates, as you would call them, uh, since Andy's been born. Uh, we're thankful for our time with her. We love spending our time with her. Uh, we don't go looking for ways to not spend our evenings with her. Uh, and if you know me, my schedule's crazy. Lindsay works very hard and has had to really do a lot at work, uh, especially of late. So uh, both of us, we love maximizing our time at home in the evenings, just being with Andy and, and just giving her the best of each other and, you know, watching, watching Andy grow and pick up on new things, say new words and start new habits. It's really a surreal experience uh, to be there at ground zero with someone. And as you all have, have done in your own families with your own kids and grandkids, just watching them uh, become the person they're going to be and seeing how that comes together is just really a, a, a blessing that we don't take for granted. But uh, Lindsay's parents insisted on taking Andy with them to a few stores and, and they hardly get to spend time with her. So uh, we're, with just her. So they were, we were glad for them to do that. So it, Lindsay and I were alone and at home and didn't really have anything, didn't really know what to do with ourselves, so we went out and, and got dinner. So uh, we've done that a thousand times, it seems, in the past, but, it, but with it being so long um, uh, or so infrequent uh, of late, we, uh, you know, going out, it really took me back to years ago, just sitting across the table from just each other and, and just getting to know each other so many years ago now. Um, I, I don't know what started the trend of, uh, or the practice um, of sharing a meal with each other as, as kind of being the key grounds for getting to know someone. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's kind of wild. That's the universal symbol for, for getting to get to get getting to know a person when, you know, if you sit down with, with someone over dinner or share coffee with them, that's kind of, you know, everybody kind of understands, hey, that's that's the time to get to know the other person and talk and share things and, and, and you know, really uh, tell each other's stories. Uh, I, it's a safe way, I guess, because if, even if the conversation's not so good, you can at least have good food, right, if you don't ever go out again. But even continuing as you are married, you know, you always learn something new, it seems, across the table from each other. It's always an opportunity with family and friends uh, to learn something that, uh, that can, helps you connect the dots um, in the story behind the person. There's something about food that inspires people to tell stories and reveal information that you might otherwise never find out or they wouldn't just offer up randomly on their own. And it's usually through a random story or it's usually through just an incidental comment that gives you the opportunity to, to ask about something or learn about something. And, and it's what I call filling in the background or coloring in the background of the, the image of the person, of the story of the person. It's coloring in those background. It's filling in that background shot of who that person is. For all of us, there's more about us than just our presentation. There's a story behind every one of us. There's a story behind everything about us that we didn't just wake up the way that we are. There's a lot, a lot to us, and, and it's usually involving a story 
or two. Um, it's like the old saying, you can't just look at a book and get the idea of what the book is about. The cover only tells you the title, and it might give you a snapshot of the contents or the setting or, or the, the images that you'll be able to visualize, but you kind of have to read the story to know all of the details. And the same thing goes for a movie or uh, a picture of anything. Uh, if, if you're going to know the details, the flavor, and the character, you're going to need to experience more than just a distant observation. Uh, the thing about getting to know someone, you know, you and I, we're not static creatures. Uh, we are dynamic creatures. That means we're characterized and we're defined by changes and circumstances that we've experienced over time. And, and it's those changes and circumstances that begin to shape us into who we become and who we are. And, and all of who we are today is a result of things that have impacted us, things that have changed us, and circumstances that have molded us. Those experiences are a part of who we are, and, and which is why when we are getting to know someone, it usually involves sharing stories because it's in those stories that we get the explanation, we get the texture of, of how we became who we are and, and how we got to where we are. And, and, and again, there's a story behind all of us from the, people that, from the people that we are to the things that define us and describe us. Again, the texture, the color, the detail of every one of us. To truly know someone, uh, to truly know me or any of you, we really need those stories. We need those details. We need um, those, that information to flesh out the whole picture. Now, not, a lot, not all of us are great storytellers. Um, not all of us are eager to communicate or even comfortable telling our stories, especially if they've, been, they've had some bumps in the roads and all of us have some, some, some chapters that we're not really excited to tell. Um, but, but deep down, we all know our own stories, whether we ever tell them or not. We all know that our stories matter and that ha they, they have led us to this place. All of us have a story to tell. If, we're, if, I, were not, if I were to ask any of you uh, a few questions, not on the spot, but in personal conversations as friends and confidants, if I were to ask you, you know, why are you the way that you are? Why are you like you are? Why are you you? If I were to ask you, what's the story behind you, I think you could answer that question. Even if you didn't really want to, or even if you, know, you, you at first didn't really want to share all the details, all of us know our own stories because we were there for them, right? We were in the middle of them. We become to who we are today because we've been through these narratives. And you might not go point A to point B. You may tell your stories in a roundabout way. But if I were to ask you, hey, what's the story behind you? Well, you know, how did you become the person that you are today? And, and what, did, what did you go through to get here? You know, again, whether you tell the story from beginning to end, you, in a roundabout way, you would address, uh, you know, recounting your most defining moments, your significant experiences in life. The point is, if I were to ask you these questions, you'd be able to answer them, and only you would have the authority to answer them and the ability to answer them. Within you, whether you tell the story or not, whether you want to tell the story or not, within you is a story that can be told. That brings us to the calling that today's scripture brings down on all of us. This isn't a new calling to anyone. If you've been in church more than a dozen times, you've heard a sermon on this very subject. Um, you've probably heard sermons on this subject a hundred times or more. Uh, every Christian is familiar with the Great Commission, uh, evangelism, disciple-making, Protestant or Catholic, or even uh, those in the unorthodox you know, movements that are attached to Christianity. Every Christian movement, uh, every religious movement in many ways, but every Christian movement is, uh, has sat under directives and heard emphasis on spreading the word, investing, inviting, reaching, and engaging. We've talked about this imperative dozens of times in both sermons and small groups, in Bible studies. But, but why, you might wonder, why are we talking about this today? Well, well, let me just make it clear. This sermon in this series isn't about why you should do this. This sermon isn't just another, another series, a, a part of another series um, uh, that's about why you should make disciples, why you should share the gospel, why you must do these things. We've had those sermons before. We've heard those sermons before. Um, again, this is not another reminder of the need to go and tell the world about Jesus. I think you know that that's important. The goal of this message in the next few messages is really all about helping us know what story to tell. Because there's a difference. This is not an urgent reminder to tell the story. You've heard that urgent reminder more times than you can count. 
This isn't an urgent reminder to go and tell. This is about learning to know, learning what story there is to tell. I feel like a lot of Christians in church, uh, we hear the calls to go and share, obey the Great Commission, and we don't downplay the importance of, and we don't doubt the necessity or the urgency, but our problem is, where do we really start? Like, you know, am I just supposed to walk up to people and say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? I mean, we, we really don't know the tactics. We don't know the, the way in which we should go about this. And it's really intimidating. And, and I, I understand it. We just don't really know how to do it. And if we really, you know, when it's appropriate to do it. And hey, you know, we, we just kind of get in our own heads about it. And I get all that. Uh, and it could be, and, and I'm sure that it is. There's a lot of us, uh, a lot of us uh, don't really understand this and, and aren't really comfortable in this because we weren't reached that way. A lot of you, myself included, we weren't reached through evangelism, so we don't really know how to evangelize. And, and that, that's a really uh, an obvious thing, but something that we don't admit all the time. So let me explain. A lot of us were raised in church, and we grew up around it. And that's great. Uh, and we, we came to our own faith. We had to make it personal. But it was never really in question whether we were going to or not. And of course, there was always the option that we might not. But we were raised in it. We were brought up in it. It was always expected that we would believe and, and, and continue the tradition forward or continue our faith forward. So another reason in and of itself, this self-benefit, I think, of this conversation um, as to why this series will be good for you. A lot of us that were raised in church, we were told what to believe and we were so impacted by what everyone else believed that it just kind of spilled into us naturally and we never questioned it. But there will come a time in all of our lives. There will come a time in every one of your lives, regardless of how traditional you are and how ironclad you are in your faith, in your practices, there could be a time and there probably will be a time for every one of you when you might wonder, why do I really believe this? And you may even wonder, and, and nothing wrong if you ever think this because I, I, we need to know how to respond to it. You may even wonder or your kids may wonder, do I really believe any of this? You know, my mom told me I should do this. My grandpa told me I should do this. I've heard 100,000 preachers and sermons tell me why I should do this. And, I, and I've kind of went along with the motions because, I've, I mean, I don't really, I don't, I don't want to go to hell and I don't want to be confused and, and I, you know, I'm not really hurting myself doing this. But at some point in your life, you'll ask the question, do, do I really believe this? And, and if you never ask this question, I guarantee your kids will. I guarantee your grandkids will. I guarantee someone that you sit beside in church will. Hundreds of thousands of people walk away from church every year, not because they quit believing or not because they had a bad experience believing. Hundreds, if not thousands of people walk away from Christianity simply because something challenged their faith and they were not equipped to respond to it. Something made them think, this isn't really that big of a deal. I don't need to do this. And they weren't prepared to respond to themselves. So they walked away and nothing within them convicted them of why they did that. You may have challenged them, but you didn't really know how to confront them and you didn't even know the words to talk to them or use with them. Their faith was tested. Perhaps they lacked a genuine faith or a strong faith and it was exposed. They, and, and we've been there, they didn't really know the reason for which they believed in the first place. Therefore, they fell away easily, subtly. Don't get me wrong, it's great and it's ideal and it's preferred and it's a tremendous blessing to be born in church and raised in church. But if you never dig into why you believe what you believe, if you never really internalize the reasons you have to believe, you will, be, you will become very vulnerable in your life and in your faith. A majority of church-born, raised Christians go through life without ever really knowing the countless reasons they have to believe, the evidence and the assurance as to why Christianity is the one and only way to God and, and the way to access God. So evangelism aside, I think we all need to be reminded and discover even why our faith is indeed worth singing about and living for and even dying for if necessary. So if you're the type that's always been head down and you, you, you're doing what you're told to do, hey, that's great. If you're the type that you've never questioned, you never will question, or you don't think you will, you've been doing this since you were a kid and you don't think you're going to stop, hey, that's great and good for you. But there will come a day when you might wonder, what's the point? 
Where the, where's the proof that makes all of this important as I've been told it should be, as I've been making it out to be? And if there's ever been a generation where people coming up are going to ask those questions, if there's ever been a younger generation that are thinking and asking these questions, we better be a church that can answer these questions. You better be a Christian, a parent, a grandparent, an, an aunt or an uncle or someone of influence. You better be able to answer these questions. God expects you to be able to. Even if, you've, even if you've never had a crisis of conviction, you still may confess that as firm as you are in your faith, you've never really known where to start with sharing it. And you, could, you definitely wouldn't be able to rescue someone who is teetering on the, on, the oper, on the decision to walk away. So, for your own sake and for the sake of others, when someone asks, hey, why are you a Christian? This series is about helping you explain that to yourself, to others, to the world. That's why it's called Reasons to Believe. But there are, there are a bevy of reasons to believe. We could start today and not stop until the new year about how many reasons and what the reasons are to believe there are endless numbers of reasons. The Apostle Paul writes to us in Colossians 4, and, and in verse number 2, he wants us to be thankful. And he, he tells us, he encourages us to be vigilant in prayer. And, 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 and this is really a, a praise, a thanksgiving prayer to God. He tells us that we should be thankful for our faith. And the reasons we're going to learn in this series will help amplify our gratitude. I'm not saying you're not grateful to be a Christian. I'm sure that you are. You wouldn't be here today if you weren't. But I think that we all stand, we all stand room to be more grateful. And the, reason, the more reasons we have to, to understand our faith and the, the proof for our faith and the, and, the, and the testimony about our faith, the more reasons you have to believe, the more grateful you're going to be. Verse number three, Paul says that we should be watchful, uh, looking for an open door to speak the mystery of Christ. So not only will this make us more thankful, but having reasons, having understanding of the reasons to believe will make us more watchful, will make us become watchful, and will help simplify our testimony. That if we're going to go through the open doors God opens for us, and it could be in your own home because your kids, your grandkids, they're going to ask these questions. Your husband, your wife, they're going to ask these questions. You're going to ask these questions in your own heart. So having these reasons to believe ironed out, having these reasons to believe understood clearly or more clearly will help you be more aware, more watchful to the doubts that you have, the doubts that others have, and it will help make your testimony to remind yourself or to remind others, it will help simplify your testimony. When you go into a courtroom, you, if you ever have went to a courtroom with a lawyer, you're hoping that the lawyer has his testimony buttoned up. You don't want him to get to the stand and kind of just be sorting through papers thinking, well, I, I promise you I can make the case. Give me a little bit. You want him or her to be prepared, right? And we need that same preparation in our own hearts for ourselves and for others. Down in verse 4 and 5, Paul says that we are to redeem the time. He says we are to be mindful of our time and our opportunities so that we might intensify our passion or that our passion may be intensified. The more reasons you have to believe, the more understanding of what your reasons are to believe, I believe this can make our passion more emboldened, make our confidence greater. Uh, it's so important when it comes to evangelism. You can tell clearly if someone's excited about their faith or if someone is just kind of going through the motions. Uh, it's important when it comes to being in our own defense, being ready and able to, and knowledgeable allows us to rebuke the enemy and shoot down the whispers and doubts that he brings to us and allows us to be there for others. Listen, most people don't walk away from church because of some faith-shattering tragedy. Most Christians don't back away from serving the Lord because of some great tragedy. Most people walk away because something pokes a hole in their already flimsy, shaky faith. Something says this time could be used this way. This resources could be used that way. Something says you don't really believe that, do you? I mean, look at all these other, these, these uh, oppositions. Look at all these things that make that seem silly. Something pokes holes in our faith and we just think, you know what? I don't get much out of this anyway. Why am I doing this? The reason why people walk away from faith is not because of some great tragedy most of the time. It's because of simple little doubts and whispers that wear away at our faith over time. 
your spouse, your kids, your family members, your coworkers, most of them walk away from devotion because they didn't have a good enough reason to stay. It's not that God wasn't trying to keep them, and it's not that God isn't trying to win them back, but they weren't prepared for that trial, for that test. The Apostle Peter, a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, Peter writes to Christians in first century Rome who were facing persecution, who were facing devastating, fiery trials. Peter says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, now let me explain that. That as a Christian, you're trying the best to do what you've been called to do. And it could, be, it could be something that you have been attacked mentally. It could be something the enemy's bringing against you. Doubts and, 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 and worries about whether I should be doing this. And is God really in this? Is God really for me? It could be things that you're dealing with mentally. It could be doubts that you're struggling with. It could be things that the devil is trying to tear you apart from the inside regarding. Or, of course, it could be external opposition, whether it's people that are just being you know, difficult or in their case, a government that was working against them. So Peter says, if you suffer, if you're having a bad day, if you begin to question your faith because of circumstances within you or around you, and haven't we all been there? If you, as uh, you're trying to be righteous, you're trying to serve the Lord, whether you've been told to do it or you really want to do it either way, you're trying to go through the right steps of following Jesus and you begin to suffer, whether internally, whether externally, you begin to suffer through your own doubts or because of some other opposition. Peter says, have no fear, nor be troubled. Well, I mean, that's easier said than done, Peter, but here's Peter's response and it's not some mighty miracle working power that he's saying that we should call down here's what he says in your hearts honor christ the lord is holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you or anyone that causes you to question the reason for the hope that is in you sometimes the reason we question the reason we doubt is because of our own voices our own struggles it could be someone external like it was for them. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we don't need other people's help. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy, right? I mean, we're, we're, all, we're all complicated creatures. We have our own struggles internally, much less what's going on outside us. But Peter says if we're going to endure these trials and we're going to endure these, these, these moments of doubt, these moments of, of, of questioning our faith, which happens to everyone, these moments that make our faith difficult, that make us question, why am I doing this? Is it worth it? Peter says we've got to be always prepared to make a defense. That word defense is, is literally to, to give an answer, to give enough evidence, whether it's yourself that's asking it or somebody else. What is the reason for the hope that is within you? It's like Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, that we may know how we ought to answer, how we ought to respond to each person, to each voice. The world is going to put pressure on us. We are going to put pressure on ourselves when it comes to trying to live for God, make our lives matter for bigger and brighter reasons. Having these reasons to, to believe all sorted out, ironclad within us is important as it is for our testimony. All, and by all means, it's important for our own confidence as well. So, so I want to think about that note that Peter ends on. The reason for the hope that is within you. And we're going to take this in a number of directions in the coming week, and we'll get more personal with it in the coming weeks. But I want to spend the last few minutes today talking about this and looking at this from a broad, kind of top-down, sweeping vantage point. What is the reason as to why the church should be taken seriously? What is the reason as to why our hope should be heard and shared more than any other would-be saving message? Why is Christianity, why should Christianity, why should the church and its message and the movement that we're a part of, why should we be taken seriously? Why should you double down when it comes to your faith? And why should we be motivated to go to the world and share a message about Christ? No matter what angle you approach this question from, if you aren't a, question, a Christian and you're looking for reasons to believe, if you sometimes question the importance of being a Christian, or if you're wanting to step up and be prepared to share your faith, I think this is good for all of us, all categories. If you're not a Christian, well, of course, having some reasons to believe would be, would be good, right? Or if you're considering. 
If you sometimes question the importance of your faith, or if you have children or grandchildren that they, they come to you and they say, you know, why, why do you believe that? Or why should I believe that? Or am I really, you know, should I really do this? If you want to be prepared to respond to them, and, and if you just want to be prepared to share the message of Christ with a world that is increasingly unaware of him and, and the Bible and the message of Christianity, then I think this is going to help all of us. And I, hopefully this, this opening message will help us kind of get centered in with this these reasons. I think knowing the answers could be eye-opening for you, revelatory in the most incredible sense, filling you with passion and excitement and confidence. 2,000 years ago, when Peter and Paul are encouraging their audiences to stay faithful and be bold against the uphill battles that they were, in, they were engaged in and they were, they were unimaginable to us, they were doing so in a world that was not on their side. They were doing so in a world where having faith in Christ could cost you your life not even considering the risk of sharing it. Being private with your faith would cost you, much less being public. Their versions of church and gathering to worship were a far cry from what we are doing here today. If you know anything about the Roman Empire, they did everything within their grasp, within their means to eradicate Christianity before it grew. And if we were to go back in time, if you and I were to suddenly teleport back through time and Let's say we, we arrive in the Roman Colosseum. It's, it's, a, it's an afternoon, it's, it's a Sunday afternoon in 80, 90, even 150 or 250 or 300 AD. We all of a sudden teleport. In today's world, on Sunday afternoons, people fill up arenas to watch ball games and all sorts of sports. But in those days, you filled up an arena called the Roman Colosseum to watch Christians be systematically tortured fed to lions, ripped apart. If you and I were suddenly to transport back in time to that Roman Colosseum, or down the road there was a place called Nero's Circus that was built by Emperor Nero to do even more horrifying things than what could be done in the public scene at the Colosseum. If you, and I were, if you and I were to be teleported back in time and we were to take a seat in that stadium and we were to look over our shoulders to the left or the right and all the Romans and all the people from around the Roman provinces and we were to whisper, hey, 2,000 years from now, would you believe that this very site would be a ruin, would be a relic, would be a museum where no one comes here to remember Rome or the emperor, but they come here to remember Christians. No one comes here to ask what, what were those people they used to kill here? Christians? Who were they? What, what, what were their stories? No one comes here wondering who they were. People come here most likely because they are Christians and they're wanting to know the story of the church. If we were to go back in time and we were to talk to one of the Roman guards that helped lead the Christians down into the dungeon and bring them out of the floor, and we were to say to those Roman guards, one day, thousands of people around the world, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, billions of people around the world will gather together on Sundays, and they will not be in places like this, being tortured. They'll be gathered together in sanctuaries all around the world, praising Jesus Christ as their Lord. Do you think do you think those Roman citizens, those Roman centurions would believe us? If you and I were to go into the dungeons and were to tell the Christians that we're about to be killed and fed to the lions and say, hey, don't worry, guys. 2,000 years from now, Christians are going to be one of the most dominant forces of people in the world. Would they believe us? Don't worry, guys. One day, all of the city of Rome will be dedicated to Christianity. One day, the entire world will remember you all as heroes. They would look at us and say, I don't know where you are, where you're from, and who you are, but friends, Rome is forever. If, if, the, if the church makes it out of this century, we'll be lucky. Because for every dozen of Christians that are saved, it seems like that many are killed. So how did the church, how did Christianity Escape that. The Roman Empire was so persistent. They saw Christianity as a Jewish movement and Israel as a, a constant thorn in their side. Israel was set on its own independence and for every so many years they would rebel and establish, try to establish their own free state. Rome knew Israel was a unique case. They were very stubborn. 
They'd heard stories passed down from the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks. So they made a rare exception for Israel. They allowed Israel to have its own king and essentially gave it the ability to govern itself with its own law, hoping that they would just stay, they would behave and pay their taxes. It made the other nations of the world jealous, but Rome said, hey, we run the show. Y'all do what y'all need to do. Let us take care of Israel because we need to keep these people in line. They're, they're, a, special, they're a special case. But things changed around 30 A.D. or so. There was a carpenter who turned a rabbi who turned into a would-be alleged Messiah named Jesus of Nazareth. And Rome had to double its efforts in watching over Judea. Eventually, they got tired of hearing all the whispers and rumors. They could not run the risk of this Jesus being an actual revolutionary. Uh, They heard they had their own governor uh, oversee a trial. And even though that governor said that he was not at all dangerous, they did not want to take the chance. A new zealous movement was too risky for Rome. Israel had already been a little bit of a challenge. So the easiest way to kill the movement was to kill the leader. So on the 14th of Nisan, or on April 3rd, 33 AD, Rome crucified Jesus and they washed their hands and said, okay, finally we can move on, he's dead. Yet the craziest thing happened, not months later, not years later, but within weeks of his crucifixion, his depleted following was suddenly back to life and their message was in the streets of Jerusalem as they had been threatened to be crucified in a similar fashion. Their message was in fearlessness and in boldness was that, hey, we're back to life because Jesus, whom you crucified, is back to life. We've seen him. You killed him. We've seen him. And he is going to change the world. These many women that were in hiding during his crucifixion, that were in hiding on Resurrection Sunday. Suddenly, we're back in full force. Despite attempts to cover up the empty tomb, these men and women were defying the threats of of Jerusalem and of the government, and they had a purpose and a calling like anything, unlike anything anyone had ever seen. The Jewish authorities tried to downplay the movement because they thought if Rome catches wind that this movement is still move, that this group is still moving and it's getting bigger, Rome has no problem coming in here and getting rid of all of us. So we need to keep this on the down low and we need to try to take care of this ourselves. If Rome gets wind that this movement is back and, and they're claiming that he's raised back to life and, and that, that these people are being defiant about the power of crosses and the power of Rome, if they, get, if they feel threatened by this, they'll just come wipe us all out. So they tried to keep it hush-hush. And they hired one, uh, they they had a a, a Pharisee turned bounty hunter that was helping them hunt down Christians and get rid of the movement before it ever got off the ground in Judea. But the problem was, after that, Israel's number one bounty hunter converted to Christianity and became its biggest advocate and evangelist. We know him as the Apostle Paul, then called Saul before too long, Paul took the movement to far and wide into Greece, into Rome, and Rome got very nervous because they noticed around all these Jewish communities that the, there was this fervor for a Messiah. There was this excitement for this Messiah, and they heard people begin to talk about Jesus of Nazareth, and they thought, we killed that guy. So Rome said, you know what, we, we got to get rid of the Jews because they thought, hey, th- th- because it was a Jewish movement, it was, a, it was from Israel. So in 48 AD, Rome expelled the Jews from the empire. And eventually the church continued to grow and Rome was so confused, so befuddled, they once and for all rolled their sleeves up and said, you know what, we're just going to end this. Israel has been a problem for us for hundreds of years. It's been a problem for the world for hundreds, for thousands of years. We're going to do what every empire before us wanted to do. And Rome goes in in 70 AD and raises the city of Jerusalem, burns it to the ground, destroying the temple. Every relic and remnant of the Jewish faith is burned to a crisp. And here, here, here was Rome's rationale. We destroyed the origin point of, this, of the religion. So therefore, every religion needs a temple. Every religion needs a, needs a home, a place to go to make pilgrimages. So we've gotten rid of the source. We will never have to worry about this little movement again. And while Judaism struggled, Christianity only continued to flourish. And Rome was completely jaw agape. Could not understand it. 
This movement kept getting bigger and bigger. There was no need for a temple. No, there was no need for a home base. The, the church kept growing. As it continued to grow, Emperor Trajan, who ruled from around 98 AD to 117 AD, Emperor Trajan um, appointed a deputy named Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger was a Roman, uh, Roman uh, official. He was made a, a deputy to form a task force to hunt down Christians and execute them. As more and more suffered and died, Christians began leaving the cities and meeting on the backside of farms and in homesteads and rural areas, uh, and they began doing their worship services literally in the woods, literally uh, you know, in barns that had been abandoned, homes that had been burnt down uh, you know, during these hunts for Christians. Pliny the Younger documented his efforts and we're fortunate to have some of his observations all these years later. The Christians were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and they sing responsively a hymn to Christ as a God and they bind themselves by oath not to some crime, but, but not, not to some crime, not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery. So, so by Pliny's observation, these folks are harmless. But their biggest offense to us is they worship Jesus, the man that we crucified. They worship this man as if he is God. There is no God but the emperor. There is no God but the Roman gods. So they are defying us by worshiping this guy that we killed, and yet they continue to say he's alive. So Pliny, giving the authority to do what he wanted to do, says, I interrogated them for no doubt I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians, those who confessed. I interrogated a second time, a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. So he would give them a chance, denounce Christ as God, honor the emperor as supreme. And when they didn't do it a second time or a third time, off went their head. Pliny said, for I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness or inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. For hundreds of years, this was the rule in Rome. Now, now maybe this doesn't phase you because, well, this doesn't go on anymore, at least not here. Can you imagine can you imagine people by the thousands would gather together in secret all across Europe knowing there was a good chance they would be spied on and a likely chance they'd be apprehended on their way back to town? They'd be captured, interrogated, and executed, yet they still gathered with many or most dying. Can you imagine that? Can you even fathom that as a category on Sunday mornings? Yet. Yeah. Those who survived, persisted, kept believing, stayed devoted. And against all these odds, the church kept growing. For hundreds of years, this was the rule of Rome. And against all the opposition, the church kept growing and growing and growing. When plagues would strike the Roman Empire, and all the pagan priests would flee the town. Christians would go back into town and nurse the sick back to life. When Roman families would take their young daughters and abandon them at the riverside because they weren't blessed by the gods with a boy. When they would lay their girls at the river hoping a wolf would get them before they drowned. Christians would go and take these, these, these girls and raise them as their own. When, Christians, when Christian landowners and slave owners, when, when slave owners and landowners became Christians, they would do this radical thing. They would unleash, they would free their slaves. They would give their slaves freedom and independence. It was literally wrecking an economy against all odds and against all the popular sentiment of how life should be run, the church kept growing and the church kept making a difference. As Rome became more harsh, as plague struck, as the church, as the suffering grew and persecution grew, the church would shine brighter and brighter despite the fire burning hotter and hotter. 
They spearheaded a new way of life that would dominate or influence larger culture for many, many years. Meanwhile, the world around them plotted along. Nations raged. The church was just a shadow in the background of a larger story. No one ever thought it would be more than just an obscure little movement on the backside of town. But fast forward to today. It's a different story to be told, isn't there? Just consider what's going on in our world right now and consider how we respond to these things that happen today so differently than maybe they would have been responded to even a hundred or so years, a few hundred years ago. I think we, like everyone in our country, would agree that what's going on between uh, in, in Israel and uh, uh, Palestine, uh, the crimes against humanity, the indecency and the terror is unexcusable. We're appalled to see what's taking place in the homes of these Israelis. The scenes are beyond horrifying to witness. Not too far from there, there's an ongoing war between Ukraine and Russia. For nearly three years, the Russians have been just wrecking havoc against the Ukrainians. And everyone in this country agrees there's no way to justify that behavior. On the other side of the world, there's a conflict that goes on every day between the Chinese government and its own people. I think we know the Chinese government is not too, never been too good to its people. But if you look into the documented, the, the, the sources that talk about what goes on in the wall, between, in, in the bounds of China, there was a Congress committee on international relations a few years ago, had a deposition. It went into the detail on the forced abortions and sterilizations that take place in China. The numbers are chilling and harrowing. Approximately 13 million Babies are, uh, are, are, suffer forced abortion every year for as far back as many years as we can count. Over 300,000 women per year are forced to receive evasive contraceptives and undergo surgeries that prevent them from ever ha having children. The numbers only speak of what ha happens in free territories. Minorities like the Uyghurs are gathered into concentration camps and the authorities have no remorse for their actions. Now, I'm not just picking on that part of the world, but by no means, uh, and, and the people can't help it, but a third of the world's population live there. We could go on and on about the other atrocities that take place in the broad daylight of the world. The stuff happening in Palestine and Ukraine and China take place in front of God and everybody. And almost everyone in this country agrees there's no excuse. Almost everyone in this country and in Western civilization agrees and are overwhelmed at how atrocious those things are. We would rather just ignore that it's happening. The reason we get to ignore these things is because we have it so good here. I know that cable news loves to fear monger, but there's so many things that protect us from the ground up and the top down. More importantly, the collective conscious of our country is centered by and constantly checked by this idea that everyone is born with certain inalienable rights. We just agree. Now, America hasn't always gotten this right. It took us a hundred or so years to, or hundreds of years to get this right. Collectively, we rise up today, though, and we condemn all the atrocious, appalling wrongs around the world. We agree that people deserve dignity, that peace is possible, and that violence is never excusable. But where does this conscience come from? Where does this moral compass come from? It didn't just show up in 1776. It didn't start with America. It's shared by many around the world in light of, the, uh, of what the majority of the world thinks and feels in light of the, where most of the power lies in the world. What we believe and how we feel is not normal. It's not the majority consensus. It's not natural. What we think is the standard of life, the standard of living, isn't so standard around the world. We think these rights and these ideas are natural because they've been so imprinted into our country. We feel like we're born into them. We feel like that we're, they're natural, they're normal. But there aren't. We learned this mindset. Our institutions and societal standards make it so that we pick up on these ideas sooner than later. And you can trace the reason why back through all sorts of points of interest, but it's undeniable that the source of these ideals, the frame of mind that we collectively share, it comes from Christianity. There's no other way to solve it. It comes from the presence and impact of the church. It comes from an ethic that was instilled and installed into the hearts of Christians, hardwired at the center of the church's identity and mission. 
If you go back through history where the church gained prominence and left the greatest footprint, the trajectory of those territories begin to divert from the trajectory of others. The nature of cultures that were influenced by the church are starkly in contrast to the natures of those that have not been impacted by the church as strongly. If not for Christianity, if not for the influence of the church, how its ideas have spilled over into the larger mind of society, none of us would be surprised or shocked or disturbed by what happens all around the world, whether it's in Palestine or Ukraine or China. We wouldn't be surprised. We would, we would expect those same things to happen in our own country because that's what most people accept and settle for. The reason why Western Europe and America and other so-called Western-influenced cultures and societies are different than the majority of the world, it can solely be explained by this rise and spread and impact of Christianity. But that in and of itself isn't a reason to believe or practice your faith. Hopefully it's a starting point. And it gets you to, a starting point enough to get you to ask and to get you to wonder, how did Christianity gain this influence? How did Christianity become this influential? How did it break out beyond the borders and boundaries and lines it was started within? How did it go from Christians being hunted and killed by the predominant ruling empire? How did Christianity become such an influence that, that has created this divide between our civilization and the rest of the world? How did that happen? There is indeed a through line from first century bold and devoted believers to our modern world where Christianity's imprint and influence is so clear and so powerful. Those that went before us carried a torch of this ethic, this ethic of Jesus, this mindset of Jesus, this lifestyle of Jesus that became it, the conscience of our own modern Western society. This ethic that Jesus introduced into the world changed the world from the inside out. It's the reason why we value each other. It's the reason why we don't see tyranny and bloodshed, bloodshed as incidental and unavoidable. It's the reason why the church has changed the world. It's the reason that Jesus said would be the ultimate testimony of the church. The night before he died, he gathered his followers into an upper room and he explained that he was going to give his life up for the world. And he said this to his followers, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Guys, I know it feels like it's us against the world. I know we're small. I know it looks like I'm losing, but I promise you this. If you keep this ethic at the center of your movement, if you love one another like I I have loved you, willing to pour your life out if necessary. If you value each other and you see the importance of each other and you see in each other the, the image of God and the dignity of life, if you love one another like I have loved you, one day the world will know me and know you and be different because of you. By this, and only by this, the world will know and the world will change. So why and how did the church persist in the first century despite all the odds stacked against it? Christians were dedicated to their world with a radical resurrection-powered love. That is the only explanation as to how you go from Christians being beheaded on Sunday morning after church to you and I sitting here today alongside two billion other believers who see Jesus as our Messiah. And the reason why you and I can see things on television that make our skin crawl, how could that happen? How can the world in 2023 be like that? It's because the places in which the church has not made an impact as it has in our country, as it has in many parts of the world, the places that are still in the dark, it is so, so, so dark and you and I know what the light is because somebody before us said I'm going to give my life to the love of God and the love of people and hopefully that might change the world one day and you are here today we are here today because Christianity did indeed leave an impact on the world
The Christians of Rome didn't give up when the fire surrounded them. They kept praying, they kept serving, they kept spreading the good news. They built the church into a force for good and change. And it's that church and it's that love that has persisted and defined our own country and our own outlook on the world. You want a reason to believe? You want evidence for why you should take Christianity seriously? Consider how we got here, how Christianity and its values went from the utter obscurity to anchoring an entire society. It did not happen naturally. It didn't, we didn't wake up one day better off. The church and its people loved and served and lived out its faith. And we are here today, stewards of this gift in our generation. And the question is, what are we doing with it? Do we take these things for granted? Are we going to let this be a reminder to us how fortunate we are, how great an opportunity we have? I think we've found a reason to be thankful. I think we found a reason to be watchful. I think we found a reason to be mindful today. I hope we can all find a greater reason to believe after this talk today and a greater sense of urgency and passion to go and tell the world about Jesus. And more than that, go and show the world who Jesus is by doing exactly what those who went before us did, by laying their lives down, by loving one another and by not allowing the darkness to win, but shining our light brighter than ever before. You want a reason to believe? Our presence today and the way we see the world is a reason to believe. And we can give the world a reason to believe by showing them how powerful and how rich and how transforming the love of God can be. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just taking us back from these pages of Scripture where you first told the Roman Christians to be bold and to spread the word. Lord, what they were going through is unimaginable. And all these years later, we are here because they stayed faithful. We are here because they stayed vigilant and they stayed focused. Lord, I don't know where this lands with everybody, but I hope that you can bring, all, bring in perspective all of us and give us a reason to believe today. And, and regardless of where we're all at in our faith, if we've ever had a moment where we wondered, hey, why am I doing this? And why should I take the church seriously? And why is Christianity more than, better than anything else? Lord, may today put in perspective to all, in all of our minds the work you've done in the world and how it started and how we've been blessed to be impacted by it. And Lord, the very Jesus that worked in the world 2,000 years ago, he's still alive today. And I pray you would encourage all of us that he still empowers us and he still leads and guides us and he still has a purpose for us. Lord, help us to see that it's the love, sacrificial, radical love that changed an ancient world. And it's that love that's made us all see the world differently and gives us a chance to continue to make a difference in our world. Lord, we pray and ask all these things and we intercede for those today that are suffering all around the world. And may your love make a difference, not just to them, but through us to them. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.